0: The Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman, Brett King, Cameron Colley and Alec Doughty. Thank you very much indeed. Welcome to another episode of The Boys of Tech, a weekly discussion on all things tech in the week just been. This one is episode 146 for the week beginning Monday the 12th of November 2011. My name is Edwin Herman and I'd like to welcome to the panel, as per almost every week these days, Alec Doughty. Welcome along. Hi Ed, how are you doing? I'm fantastic. Fantastic. I'm fantastic. Good to hear. And I'm even more excited about this episode than than any other, really, because it's got a number of stories that are kind of not just down the sort of computer internet-y line, Got a couple of science-y type ones.
1: They scratch the science itch. They do.
0: First of all, having said that, I do want to kick off with an internet-y type story, and that is the story of someone trying to make a point about Facebook's security, or lack thereof, by posting some photos of Mark Zuckerberg that have been taken from Facebook.
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, this is just showing that any website has security flaws and, and Facebook is more prone to the discovery of these flaws than most sites because it has so many users.
0: I like the way, though, that they actually went and exploited the flaw by getting these pictures of Mark Zuckerberg from his uh your facebook profile
1: from his private profile as well they weren't public public pictures
0: exactly that's actually one of the best ways to get a bug fixed really quickly
1: indeed yeah embarrass the ceo
0: (laughs) that's right yeah i just kind of like the um it's not really irony justice yeah i guess yeah i was about to say just desserts same difference. I kind of like that about it. The, you know.
1: Actually, thinking about it, Just Desserts is kind of apropos as a name because one of the photos is of him in the kitchen with his girlfriend.
0: Actually, that's right. Yes. About so to let's prepare call a meal. it just, just Desserts. Just Desserts. All right. You're making me hungry. <laughs> what was the last dessert you had? Um, a Pavlova. A Pavlova. Yeah, that's a good Two weeks we, ago. Isn't it something we need to explain for people outside Australia and New Zealand? Probably, but we're not going to. <laughs> okay, right, all right. I won't go into Wikipedia to... it if you want to, <laughs> Yeah, actually true. Yeah, Wikipedia that. And it's it's not a ballerina. Yeah. <laughs> and a Pavlova. Um, yeah, uh, okay. So <laughs> moving on from desserts <laughs> to, to the next story. This next story I want to talk about is the, uh, the one where they found this. Um, this planet that is two and a half times the uh, diameter of the Earth, but most importantly, it's a planet that orbits a sun, and the planet has a nice balmy twenty-two degrees. The implication here, of course, is that is the perfect temperature for life.
1: Probably has a twenty-two degree. I think is the wording of the of the people that found it probably right, so, has so they 22 degrees. They, they, they don't know. Calculated, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, they're guessing. I think the interesting thing here is also that they, they don't actually know the mass of the planet. So it could actually be less dense than Earth. So it, it could be more of a sort of a, a gas it gaseous planet rather than a sort of iron core planet. And if that's the case, it won't have the, the magnetic fields that it needs to actually maintain... Uh, an atmosphere.
0: So, although people are getting excited about the fact that there could be life, or at least there could be the conditions right for life, that's not even set in concrete either. Like you say, no, we don't, they know. don't know. There's a lot we don't know, but it's kind of exciting that we found something that is within the realms of possibility. Absolutely, it's a it, it's a definite potential. It's a potential. That's right. It's 600 light years away. It's called Kepler twenty two b. 600 light years, you know, the, th- the thing is, let's say there was life. 600 light years away, at the speed of light, if you can transmit messages at the speed of light, it's still 600 years. Is that useful? It's
1: not, is it? Not in this sort of a era of humanity. We might get to the point where we get light speed and then we could maybe build a gigantic arc that houses thousands of people so we could have basically an entire sort of colony population that travels interstellarly.
0: But I think that's
1: really the only way it could actually happen unless it was an an unmanned one. Yeah, that's true. But even so, I mean- even if we
0: sent messages, you know, by electromagnetic radiation,
1: you know, radio signals. Yeah. It would know, take 12,000, like 1,200 years for a response to come absolutely, back. Absolutely, exactly.
0: Things would have moved on so far that even if the so-called life form on the other, you know, at this Kepler-22b planet had the technology and the ability and, and you know, to, to receive our message, by the time they send it back, will we have remembered to to, you know, how to listen for the response, you know?
1: Indeed. And because it's such a distance away, six, 600 years at light speed, there's every possibility that if, even if we launched a vessel today, which we can't do, we just don't have the speed, that by the time that vessel actually got there, our civilization would have progressed so far that we would have actually built a vessel that could have actually beaten that first one there. You'll be constantly taking yourself. Yeah, leapfrogged yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: It is exciting that there's a planet that is within the realms of possibility of of the conditions being there to support life, but at the same time, you know, I, I that's about as, as far as the excitement would go. You know, the fact is we're so far apart, it's it's meaningless. Indeed. I agree. Now, speaking of life, did you see the story there, Al, of uh, the the Russian scientists wanting to attempt a clone of the woolly mammoth?
1: Absolutely, and I and I wish them luck. That would be really cool, don't you think? It would. It would absolutely. So they're talking about a, a sort of a Jurassic Park type effort where
0: they grab some preserved DNA of the woolly mammoth and from that they produce the, the animal in, in a laboratory. That method wasn't it used for that for that ibex? The
1: um, it, what it was. was called? Yeah, the, the the ibex that lived for about a minute after it was born.
0: The fact that it was that it actually lived, uh, albeit very short, I think is an important achievement. Yeah, the it's a
1: milestone.
0: Pyrenean ibex, that's it. So, you know, they want to use the same sort of uh, technique for the woolly mammoth. The only thing, of course, with the woolly mammoth is that the DNA isn't as well preserved. I think the ibex was DNA from, you know, 10 years down the track. The woolly mammoth, we're talking... What are we talking? 10,000. Tens years? of thousands, yeah. Tens of thousands at least, yeah. But wouldn't it be cool to have, if we could do it, right? If we could do it, wouldn't it be cool to have woolly mammoths around?
1: It would be cool. But is there room on Earth for them? Well, my backyard. I
0: can keep one of my backyard. Because,
1: I mean, we're already losing the environment that even elephants need to survive. In Africa, for instance, the regions of habitable stretches of land that elephants can migrate across has gotten to the point where all of the regions are, are fenced off and are actually blocking the, the elephants' migratory paths.
0: Yeah, well, that is a very, very good point. I mean, do we have, you know, if we want to keep them in the wild, you know, and keep them, you know, bring them back into their natural environment, do we have, we have a to, space? Yeah,
1: and maybe d- in Siberia, maybe.
0: Well, the other th- question, of course, is what about the the, the food chain and the, and you know the balance of that? Is that going to upset Indeed. the yeah balance
1: or are they just going to strip mine the region that they're on? Because I mean, they are essentially of of the sort of elephant genus. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah. they they have very high food requirements. Um, they basically strip any tree that's near them.
0: Are they veget? They are vegetarian, aren't they?
1: Yeah, they eat trees.
0: Yeah, see, that's the big question. If we did it in, in captivity, I guess that's okay too, isn't it? Well, there are the ethical and moral dilemmas of zoos then. Well, I was actually thinking more sort of game reserve rather than this sort of typical old-style cage mm-hmm. in a zoo. But that sort of captivity, a controlled environment, if you like.
1: Well, Yeah, all right. So, so a controlled environment might be a bit better. Like a safari park or yeah, something.
0: that's sorry, that's kind of what I mean. Yeah, I'm not a fan of zoos. I'll, I'll you know I'll say that now. No, I, I, I really yeah. don't find them very humane at all. Yeah, you well you just got to watch a, a tiger pacing up and down and, and like as if it's going mad. It's
1: probably because it has gone mad exactly.
0: But there's certainly you know these big game reserves. You know that that effectively that the animal doesn't know it's caged and it, it can roam. Okay, it might eventually get to a fence. It turns around and walks away and forgets about it. Because the next fence is, you know, moles the other side. So, in effect, it doesn't feel like it's in captivity. So maybe we could do that with them and have this controlled environment. If we find that it's upsetting the balance in that area, we can just uh, let them die off naturally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Make them re-extinct. Is that a word? Re-extinct. If that happened, I would think have to
1: be, be a new pastime for the rich. <laughs> yeah.
0: But then this whole extinction <laughs> events. Re extinction events, yeah. But wouldn't this the other question of course is really going back directly to Jurassic Park, if we can do it for the woolly Mammoth, could we do it for dinosaurs? And if we could, would that be a good thing?
1: I would say no. We probably could, but no, it would not be a good thing.
0: But again, what if it was in a controlled environment? We we a big game, game reserve Well not I, game uh, is it called game reserve? Safari park, whatever you call it. Well, a big I, safari I think a park.
1: game reserve implies that you actually do hunting there.
0: Oh, right. Okay. I'm using the wrong term. But yeah, you know, a big um, safari park. That's the, yeah. the the word I want. A
1: nature reserve. A nature reserve. There we go. We'll go with that. So
0: that would, wouldn't that be all right if we had a few dinosaurs in that?
1: But could we really in the long term guarantee that it wouldn't get out of control, that they wouldn't become the dominant species again?
0: Ah, look, I I don't think they could ever become the dominant species over human beings. Surely, even if they uh, the experiment sort of, you know, they broke down the barriers and went wild. Surely, I mean, we can we've got technology.
1: True, we are very good at making species extinct.
0: (laughs) Actually, that is very true. It's a sad but true fact. Yeah. Well, anyway, on that that depressing (laughs) thought. It's time to move on to the next story, is it? But look, just before we do, I just want to say that uh, we should keep an eye on this story. These are scientists from Russia and Japan that are attempting to do this. And uh, having said that, though, the Rosalind Institute, who you may remember, originally did the cloning of Dolly the sheep. Their thoughts on this is that it's just not going to work.
1: Yeah, the sort of um, success percentage of this is between 1% and 5%. But,
0: you know, well, let's... Watch that space, and I'm sure if a woolly mammoth is is ever born or made or whatever you want to call it, this will be big news. It'll be huge. Yeah, I think that'll make Twitter. (laughs) It will be Twitter. That's all Twitter will be about. Yeah. Yeah. Was that a gentle dig at Twitter? (laughs) Maybe. It was, wasn't it? The uh, Swiss courts have recently ruled that downloading... Pirated copies of films, music, and video games for personal use, and I've got to stress that for personal use is the, the key thing here, will remain legal because it is not detrimental to copyright owners.
1: Sanity prevails.
0: Now, I'm going to surprise you and say no, I disagree. And I'll tell you why I disagree. Not because I'm saying it is detrimental. I'm not saying that, but I'm not saying it's not. What I'm saying is... How do they know whether it is or isn't? How
1: because they're it? actually they've How they've analysed it? the spending habits of people who are pirating and those that aren't, and the people that are pirating are still spending as much on media yeah, as but does, the people that aren't. But does that mean anything? Like, for example. Well, is no. It, what what it means is it's not having a negative impact on the industry. But
0: it, well, okay, and maybe not in the industry entirely, but what about on the things that are piratable or easily obtainable? You know, just everything. That, surely, some things are more easily found than others. That's kind of what I was basing my argument on, on the fact that okay, I want this. Okay, I've spent five minutes looking. I have found it. I'll download it. Something else, oh, I've spent an hour trying to find the thing. It's none of the torrents work. It's, it's not working. I'll flag that and I'll either buy it or or do other things. What I'm saying is, is it actually not detrimental to everyone, to all copyright owners?
1: To counterpoint your argument, does the negative effects that you're alluding to, do, do they outweigh the positive effects to the PR and, and viral marketing of a product, whether it's a movie or a or a um, a song, that pirating actually has. Well, okay, because is... it, it it studies have shown that pirating actually has positive effects on the PR of a product. Yeah, but shouldn't it be up to the copyright
0: owner to decide how that happens, or whether, in fact, that should happen, whether the product can be downloaded or or made available on p2p on torrents and stuff like that
1: shouldn't it be up to them it should be shouldn't it but it's not even now it, it's not with the copyright holders it's the government that is actually deciding
0: no i disagree it's only infringing copyright if whatever you do doesn't have the permission of the copyright owners the the people who make the stuff if they make it available on p2p if they say here or on the website download this you're not breaking the law you're only breaking the law when you're obtaining it through a means that is not sanctioned by the producers. So if they are putting on Peter's P2P, there is no problem. Just like with the Arctic Monkeys making available their album online, they did that. They own the copyright, so they can.
1: I think from that perspective, you're really just sticking your finger in the dike to prevent the flood. What, I mean, what, there's, there, there's always going to be pirating. There's always going to be that underground element of availability. So it's completely unrealistic to expect that that will go away, even if stronger laws are introduced. So work with the system. Don't try and bludgeon the system to death because that just won't work.
0: Yeah, look, I do agree with that point. And that's where the other side of me says, well, look, it's the wrong way to go about it. And they should be working with the system. They should be revisiting their models. They should be looking at uh, embracing the technology and the internet. Yeah, all those and using things.
1: it as a PR tool. Yeah, yeah, they should. So Leveraging it was an interesting public ruling
0: public. there by the Swiss yeah. government.
1: Mm. No, I, I applaud the ruling.
0: Now, let's talk about uh, browser placements because it's been a while since we've uh, had a look at the numbers. This is interesting now because we have, for the first time, seen Chrome overtake. Firefox.
1: Globally, I believe that is. This is global. It? These are global yeah. stats.
0: And that's really what counts. So Chrome is now 25.7 and Firefox has a 25.2 market share. So Chrome is number two. Well done, Chrome. Yay! Indeed.
1: Indeed. With Microsoft's Internet Explorer still maintaining a 40.6%. Yeah, that's share. that's still the line uh, share across probably six different versions of Internet Explorer.
0: True, whatever you know, whatever it's still forty point six. Although exactly. it's still the interesting thing, though, is that that line share is less than fifty percent.
1: It is. I mean, which it, seems it's to have some significant world away from where it was even eighteen months ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, I think this even is, eighteen months ago, Microsoft still maintained over fifty percent.
0: Now, I'm a little bit surprised because with IE9, you know, supposed to be far more standards compliant than any of their previous products, not that they can be <laughs> difficult to achieve. Uh, you know, I, th- I kind of thought, well, you know, maybe that'll just be enough to hold that edge and, and stay up around the 60%, 70%, but obviously not. Now, interestingly, in America, in the United States, they're still very much IE aligned, or at least that- more more so than the global average. Yeah, this
1: actually surprised me.
0: Yeah, I know. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, at 50.7% in the US Chrome is only 17.3 and Firefox is 20.1 they, these are US figures so the US is still a little bit behind the, the global trend uh, I don't know what the reasons for that is but yeah, th- there are the figures it's
1: interesting, it's very interesting, I'm, I'm not sure where maybe it's because uh, more corporations in the US so more more IE deployments maybe
0: that could be one reason Because yeah, the the corporates just, for some reason, just go, I I still have no idea why. Well, actually, I do know one of the reasons is that, and that is that, uh, you know, it is built for, uh, well, like all Microsoft products, really. Now they, you know, they can be deployed using the remote deployment tools like uh, SCCM and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, not many of the others can be. And and in fact, like Firefox is a great example. You can't do it natively like that. You have to get the, I think one of the versions is uh, Front Motion Firefox, which is basically Firefox repackaged by front motion in such a way that it can be deployed and managed remotely using something like ECCM yeah so I guess that's one reason one of the reasons why the corporates go for, for internet Explorer but in, nevertheless and in, interesting stats uh, really I think what matters is what the stats are globally because that's kind of uh, that's the full story
1: and that's representative because the uh, internet market in the developing Worlds of India and China and, and places like that are growing a lot faster and they use different browsers.
0: It's interesting too because in Europe, I think for uh, it's been a little while now already that Firefox had, I think, if from memory, outstripped uh, Internet Explorer, but that was just Europe.
1: Yeah, and that might be because uh, Europe was just really angry with Microsoft for a long time.
0: They were. They, they certainly be- made because that because of
1: thing. the antitrust with That's the right. bundling of Internet yeah. Explorer with Windows and everything.
0: That's right, and I think they still have to to provide a choice of browsers for European customers. Absolutely. Okay, and last story then for the world section of the podcast before we move into the New Zealand stories, you may have heard about the CEO of the IT giant Atos. the CEO's name is Thierry Breton. This is, of course, in France. Now, he's he's come up with this radical new move, which I must admit, initially when I heard it, I thought, this is absolutely crazy, the guy is nuts. But since then, I've come to not so much agree with him, but at least sit on the fence, and I'm kind of open to it. What I'm talking about is a decision to ban internal email in his company. So that means there is, you cannot email someone else in your organization. You can still email an outside address, and you can certainly receive emails from outside, but staff-to-staff communications are not to be done by email. That's his philosophy. Now, putting this out there, Al, what are your thoughts on this whole thing? Because this is um,
1: radical. I, it, it is. It It's very radical. I've got a number of issues with it overall. To start with, I, I can see where where he's coming from in that it email does take up a quite a sort of a productivity drain on people if it's abused. But I think if alternative communication methods such as instant messaging and social networks and stuff were used. In replacement of email, because you need something else to actually do the communication within the organization, I actually think that will have more of a, a negative impact on productivity overall than email does. Because at least with email, you can actually like not check the email for an hour and, and then go off and do a burst of email and then go back to doing whatever you're doing. So if you're doing a report, for instance, you can spend an hour drafting that report and then check your email and then go back and do another hour of drafting the report. But if your business is reliant on instant messaging to do all of your uh, communication between staff members, then whenever anyone wants to actually talk to you, they just instant message you, and you're interrupted. You, it, it's like constantly people dropping by your desk. You just never get anything done.
0: But really, you can ignore those as well. I mean, it, it's I I agree with you that it's not you know instant messaging is designed to sort of have that more more synchronous method of communication compared to email. But in actual fact, you still can ignore those things, and they'll just sit there as well. Which actually then makes me wonder what the difference is then if you <laughs> between but email there, and there, instant there, used in also... Well, anyway,
1: th- th- I think the difference is that there's no persistence in the message. So if you send a me- a, a, an instant message while someone's busy or offline or whatever, if they then decide to go home without checking their messages in, in the instant message client, it's gone.
0: Well, it depends on their system, really. I mean, I'd be surprised if if you couldn't configure that in your organization so that it doesn't Disappear. I mean, like but Skype, how, for example. How much like,
1: paint in the yeah. I, <laughs> would you have to have to trawl through? Yeah, I know. Instant messenger logs.
0: Yeah, I, I know. And, and it becomes, and as I say, if you did that, it becomes a little bit more back to email to start with. You know, if it's, you're, in, you know,
1: and email is a better yeah. tool.
0: Now, having said that, he has noticed a trend, and he's not the only one to have noticed this. And this is the new generation are coming forward, coming into organisations not using email email is so last decade for them so as much as it is a, a philosophy i guess a, you know uh, around how you run your organization i think it's also just as much a case of adapting to the way that the new generation coming through work which is i, I think important I, as well
1: it is that generational gap can influence change like that but really i I think we need to strike a a happy a a happy balance between the new tools that are coming out which are your cloud services and internal social networks like uh yammer and cloud services um, instant messaging clients such as uh, microsoft communicator and email so I, I don't think one is more important than the other. I think they all have a role. And I think instant messaging and, and social networks have more of a role in someone's off time, I think, than in a business environment. And, and a lot of the statistics that they were giving in this article was that the people that they were actually taking these stats from, this was their first job. So, of course, they've never used internal email in a company because it's their first company.
0: But I got the impression that some of them are just not using email anyway. It's not their thing. I mean, they hang out on Facebook. Yeah, but even if you're on Facebook, you have to have an email account. But do they use it? You can't not have email. Yeah, but do they use it? I mean, having one doesn't mean anything. If you're not using it, whether you've got one or not, is neither here nor there.
1: I think time will tell.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, having said that, I'll just leave you with one final thought too, and that is that since announcing this policy, they've noticed a 20% drop in the number of emails and the email volume within their company.
1: And maybe that so, was th- that was actually the end goal, maybe.
0: Well, yeah, maybe that's enough, yeah. I mean, you know, people are obviously being a little bit smarter now by the sounds of it and how they're using email. Yeah. Maybe that's all that's needed. But certainly this will, this will be a... A case study, I, I think, whichever way it goes, whether it's a failure or a success, you know, a, a year or two down the road, uh, however we measure that, whichever way it goes, it's, this will make a fantastic case study.
1: A social Petri dish.
0: Yeah, oh, I like that. And actually, speaking of Petri dishes, I just bought some agar today. Uh,
1: I would be excited if I knew what that was.
0: <laughs> oh, agar is what they, you know, the substrate, the, the medium they use to, to grow cultures in Petri dishes.
1: Ah. the a science lab. Uh, ah, well, I'm not using yes. it for that,
0: but but yeah, I bought some today. I
1: failed science at high school, so. Ah,
0: okay. You know what, I thought you'd be a science-y sort of person.
1: I was more of a math, physicsy rather than biology, chemistry.
0: Oh, okay. Well, look, I was too. Yeah, right. Okay, that's cool. By the way, I just spotted a story here ah. online asking the question, what are the chances of six double-yolk eggs in a pack? You know, in a half-dozen pack.
1: What are the odds?
0: The odds is it's one in a thousand per, so it's one in oh, it's one in a huge number.
1: Yeah, that that is getting if one double yolk in a uh, in a pack of eggs is one in a thousand, or is it? Ah, but it's not linear. Yeah, it's not linear
0: because the first, w, it's, it's one yeah, in a yeah, thousand yeah. to find any, but it, the, if you find one, the chance of another one because they come from the same batch. Yeah, uh, is, yeah it's, it's, it's 10 times higher. It's one in a hundred. So yeah. it's actually, you know, the answer is it's one in a, a thousand times, a hundred times, a hundred times, a hundred uh, times, another couple of hundred, I think. Anyway, Which is
1: pretty high.
0: It's a very huge number. And I think it's probably never ever happened before.
1: On that note. <laughs> Until we said, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Famous last words.
0: Look, on that note, I'm going to end the international section of this episode. But right after this little musical ditty, I'm going to come back and talk about what Telstra Claire's No Data Limit Weekend was all about. Don't go away. All right, welcome back. So, as we mentioned last time, uh, recently Telstra had deliberately disabled the internet meters. Now, for people outside of New Zealand and the few other countries that actually have data caps, what we're talking about here is the, the monthly allocation that users have for bandwidth. So, for example, at home, I'm on a 10 gig plan. That means I can't download more than 10 gigs of data, or upload for that matter, the whole entire traffic up and down together, can't total more than 10 gigs. If I do, I pay additional usage charges.
1: Overage is what they call Overage, it. Overage, yeah, that's right. So um, I think it's becoming more and more common, even in America, which was it, America used to be a, a fairly sort of liberal place as far as data usage, at least in fixed internet like ADSL or cable. But recently, even America has started introducing data caps. Yeah, well, you
0: know, when some years ago, five, six, seven years ago, when I was reading columns about how the internet in in the US is so much better in the sense that they don't have these data caps, that everything's just unlimited. There's no limit, right? Yeah. My first reaction was, this won't last forever. Because there's no, you know, the moment you have something that can be taken advantage of, you've got yourself a problem. It's just not sustainable. And you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, more and more I've been seeing ISPs in the US introducing caps because people have been abusing the the unlimited policy.
1: You might get individuals who are abusing it, but the majority of people still have very reasonable usage patterns. I think what this is actually about is about the networks themselves, the carriers, squeezing every last dime they possibly can out of their customers.
0: Yeah, before buying more backhaul.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right.
0: So coming back to Telstra Claire. so here in New Zealand, uh, just a weekend or two ago, Telstra Clare, one of our, I think our second largest internet service provider, for that duration of that weekend, turned off the meter. So it was unlimited for that weekend. And it was an experiment. And they commissioned TruNet to monitor the performance of the, of the network. Now, Interestingly enough, in the reports I've been reading, just to boil it down, overall, things kept ticking along, albeit a bit slower. Although on Saturday, there were some major performance issues with the internet. And I actually, that, that was kind of my take as well. I experienced exactly that. If you'd asked me my opinion on, on how it went, I would have written the exact same result as what was
1: in the reports. Is this an indicative result of how things would actually be? Or because there are data caps, as soon as the data cap was lifted, people took advantage of it. But would they take advantage of it on a day-to-day basis if there were never any caps? Well, the thing is, it
0: can go both ways. Obviously, one way it can go is, as you're saying, because the cap was removed, we're suddenly free and we're kind of overdoing it, if you like. We're, we're, exactly. Yeah.
1: So you, you suddenly go into 200% usage.
0: That's right. But on the other hand, you could also argue that, well, not necessarily everyone was either A, aware or B, able to take advantage of this. So if it was ongoing, would, you know, words spread a bit more, you know, and so maybe it would be worse? I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. I really don't I'm, know.
1: I'm of the opinion that data caps are artificial anyway that there's really no need for them
0: it's basically a
1: pricing mechanism for the carriers and nothing more than that
0: well look they are here with plans like one gig five gig 10 gig 20 gig 40 gig but if they were reasonable if you multiply that by 10 i think that's reasonable because to be honest i think it's okay to limit say something by by 400 gig a month i think that's less about money and more about just making sure that things are still kept reasonable, however you define reasonable. And well, it needs to be oh, for the internet service provider to be able to guarantee quality of service to the rest of its customers.
1: I Look, just mean that they need to actually invest in their, their infrastructure to scale with the ever-increasing demand. I'm agreeing with that, with
0: the, with the low caps. And in, in here in New Zealand, we've got very low caps. You know, a 10 gig plan is somewhere in the middle. Maybe it's slightly on the low side, but you know, a 20 gig plan is fairly
1: standard. So 20 gig plans were standard in Australia three years ago.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. And you guys have far more reasonable plans. I mean, wasn't Cam telling me some weeks ago that he, I think he was offered a 250 gig plan?
1: I'm on a 200 gig plan. Well,
0: there you go. See, and and that's reasonable. That's what I would call reasonable in this day and age. Yeah, I'm on 10 gig at home and I don't find that reasonable, but that's where I find the sweet spot in the pricing structure. And I don't want to pay more uh, than 10 gig because it's it's ridiculously expensive here. But it's an interesting experiment. The The figures are about 40% slower for ADSL, 64% slower for cable customers. But it still ticked over. Nothing really fell over apart from a short period on Saturday evening.
1: An interesting experiment, but... I'm I'm not sure how how indicative of general usage it would be if there were just a permanent sort of moratorium on caps.
0: That's a difficult thing to, to guess. The only way to do it is to to say we're lifting the caps for the next year. For, no well, caps. Well, so until un, until we change our minds. Yeah. And, and this could go for yeah indefinitely, and see what happens. So there you go. For all these Telstra Clear customers out there, I hope you made the most of it. I certainly did. I thought I was bad boy downloading 1.7 gigs of text-to-speech voices <laughs> for Mac OS <OS10>. 10. <laughs> but I read stories of people downloading something like 70 gig or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, there was one guy that said he he downloaded more in the weekend than he ordinarily would over a month with his 30 gig cap.
0: Ah, th- there you go. Yeah. So it makes my 1.7 gigs look like nothing. Anyway, that concludes the episode. Unless there's anything else you want to talk about, Al? No, I'm, I'm pretty good. I think we've uh, talked these issues to death. So, Al, thank you very much for doing the show with me this week. It's been great. It has. It has. It's been a fun discussion. Right, and that concludes episode 146 of New Zealand's Longest Running Tech Podcast. See you all again next week. <laughs> Bye-bye. See you later.